Hey friends, on March 18th, 2021, FPC welcomed Pat Laurie, who teaches at the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology. He was with us talking about Celtic Christianity and the contemplative tradition. This is a long podcast, but so worthwhile. Enjoy. Excited to hear from Pat Laurie. Did I say that? Lockery. Yeah, it's hard <laughs> so, to test that one, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, we are, I just want to let you know that we are recording this and um, we will record on speaker view. So you won't be part of the recording, but we are recording unless you have a question or something that you want to ask. And I want to also let you know that you are welcome to ask, ask questions during the presentation pat tells me that he is great with being interrupted <laughs> so um if you want to unmute yourself and interrupt i guess that's okay pat that's totally fine i i have two teenagers so i'm used to i'm used to not getting a full sentence out this works just fine. okay <laughs> so he'll <laughs> so feel can... right at home if you want to do that yeah of course you can also put questions in the chat or um if you can use your reaction here to put a well I don't have a I only have a clap I don't have a hand up but you see my reactions or you know if you put a heart up we'll know maybe you want to ask a question I don't know if you put anything on your screen I'm calling on you how does that sound um so also of course uh, as Pat's presenting if you could mute so that um we don't interrupt him with ambient noise that would be wonderful but um Welcome everyone as you're coming on. I am going to kick it over to Nikki and she's going to introduce Pat to you. Good evening, everybody. I am so happy to see all of your tiny little faces on my screen. Um, I miss gathering in person, but this is, I suppose, the next best thing. I was about a year ago, uh, this, this time that I was taking a class from Dr. Pat Lowry at the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology uh, on spiritual formation. And it was really just such a life-changing course. I felt like I came back every week and wanted to share things with people. I shared different things with our women's Bible study and just felt so enriched by it. And so when we started to talk about this grant and when we got this grant um, from the Calvin Institute of Worship, uh, Pat seemed like a perfect fit for for this particular month on contemplative study. Uh, so Pat teaches at the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology. He also has a day job that I'll let you let him tell you about if he wants to. Um, he has done a lot of study in the contemplative tradition and has studied all kinds of different ways of, of being spiritual in the world. I think next term I saw you were teaching a class on digital personhood which is one of your specialties, which sounds really interesting. So it's with much gratitude that I welcome you with us tonight. And thank you so much for being here. Before I turn it over to you though, I just wanted to read a blessing for our time. One of the books that I found um, through the class is John, o John O'Donohue's To Bless the Space Between Us. And one of the, the blessings that I, I found a little kind of appropriate for tonight was called Unmeeting a Stranger. I've been doing some thinking in my 
personal life about what it is to meet a stranger and how, how none of us are really strangers to one another. But I'll open with this blessing and then say a little prayer before we begin. With respect and reverence that the unknown between us might flower into discovery and lead us beyond the familiar field, blind with the weed of weariness and the old walls of habit. God, thank you for this time that we have to be together. Thank you for this group. Thank you for this grant that we have gotten. Thank you for the closeness of our spirits, even though we're separated in body. Pray that you will bless our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Pat. Thanks, Nikki. Thank you, everybody. I am going to start from some slides, partly because they help me to organize my thoughts. And you may find along the way that that's a helpful thing. Uh, so first of all, hopefully you can all, oops, you're like a couple of slides in here. Hopefully you can see that. Uh, let me back up. So um, by way of uh, introduction, thank you very much for the, um, for the invitation to be here. These, um, these subjects of uh, contemplative spirituality and the subjects of Celtic uh, Christian spirituality have been uh, near and dear to my heart for um, maybe 15 years or so, um, partly because, um, as Nikki mentioned, I have, I wear at least, uh, you know, a couple of hats in the, in the job world. Um, I finished my, my doctorate in ministry about 11 years ago now, um, and was looking at how are we, how can we be spiritually formed in a modern culture in which we're always, uh, online? Like really, what do we do with Facebook really was my, was my question. And in the midst of doing that, um, I was pastoring a church and I was also working in software engineering and I'm still doing sort of those two things these days. I manage software engineering teams at, at Starbucks uh, headquarters and uh, I no longer pastor, but I, I teach uh, as an adjunct in, in Christian spirituality and Christian formation um, um, almost, uh, almost 10 years now doing that work. Um, and what I found in these traditions is a way that I can keep those two parts of my self together. Uh, that's been a long challenge for me over the years uh, to be one person and not two. Um, and in the midst of doing that, like uh, learning how I be that one person, you know, here at home with my, my family and in the midst of a meeting talking about, you know, networking engineering or, or whatever, and in the midst of a class talking about Celtic prayer. Um, that's a lifelong challenge for me <laughs> to be an integrated person. And um, so I wanna share with you some of the ways in which um, I'm, I'm exploring that and trying to find that. Uh, Celtic spirituality in particular came to me by accident. Um, I was mentioning to some of the folks just as we were starting that I found this tradition totally by accident. Um, um, my family heritage, you know, my, my dad's parents were, uh, my grandpa was a uh, stereotypical Irish Catholic guy um, with, you know, everything that means grandpa was a, you know, building contractor and boxer and alcoholic and storyteller and all the things that, <laughs> that you think of when you think of an Irish dude from his generation. Uh, and grandma was a German Methodist woman and, um, she, uh, and a, a nurse and they together had two sons, my dad and his uh, brother, my uncle. And, um, my mom's uh, heritage, my, my mom's uh, parents were kind of um, Welsh and German in, in the Baptist tradition, that was grandpa. And grandma was um, 
grandma was uh, a bit Irish, a bit Welsh, uh, and um, and a Catholic, uh, very very like tender Catholic um, woman. And what's interesting for our family is that we always thought of ourselves as Irish folks um, because my grandpa was such a big character. Um, and so this spirituality came to me as I was studying for my doctorate in which we were asked to go overseas and learn from practitioners of, of Christian spirituality somewhere outside of the US. And one of the trips that we were offered was to go study Celtic spirituality. And um, for me, that was uh, initially just a trip to Ireland. <laughs> like I just sort of thought of it as a boondoggle where I got to go scout places to go visit that I could bring, uh, you know, go back to and, and visit with my wife. And it turned to, you know, it was a fun trip for that, but also it turned into so much more as I, I found a way to be um, a whole spiritual and physical person in a way that made sense for me. So hopefully you'll find some of that along the way here as well. Um, I, I want to uh, frame our discussion tonight around these, these triples. Um, by way of a brief introduction, three of the, um, the saints in this tradition, in particular in the Irish tradition, and what that might mean for us now, three places that I think can still speak to us now, and three sets of practices. Um, but before I do that, I actually would love to begin with a couple of prayers. Um, I want to begin with a prayer. Um, this is from a prayer book that I have in front of you called Daily Prayer with the Corimila Community. Corimila is a peacemaking community. It's the oldest peacemaking community in Northern Ireland. Um, they do their work mostly out of Belfast, where if you know, you know the story of uh, Belfast in Northern Ireland, uh, for the last you know, 40 years or so, there's been uh, continuing conflict and need for peacemaking. In that book, they, they write, um, Padre Gotuma, who's the author of this book, writes a poetic prayer um, in times of violence. And I'd like to offer that, um, this prayer uh, for healing and for health for our Asian American and Pacific Islander community, um, brothers and sisters. Y'all know by now that in um, a couple of days ago in Cherokee County in Atlanta, uh, Georgia area, uh, nine people were shot and eight killed um, um, as the result of um, specifically targeted violence. So this is a prayer in times of violence. God of all humanity, in times of violence, we see how inhuman we can be. We pray for those who today are weighted down by grief. And we pray for those who yesterday were weighed down by grief and the day before and all the days before the day before. We pray too for those who help us turn towards justice and peace Turn us all toward justice and peace, because we need it. Amen. I'm going to leave this open because I want to come back to one more prayer from that, from that tradition. The other one that I want to read to you comes from a, a contemporary Celtic flavored community called the Northumbria community. And on the bottom of the screen, I have a link to their, their uh, online prayer. Um, this is a, a, a prayer called Canticle. And it's based upon a prayer that we you know, inherit from the St. Patrick tradition. Um, it's either called uh, Patrick's Breastplate or the Deer's Cry, depending on who you, who you listen to. Um, and it goes like this, Christ as a light, illumine and guide me. Christ as a shield, overshadow me. Christ under me, 
Christ over me, Christ beside me on my left and on my right. This day be within and without me, lovely and meek, yet all powerful. Be in the heart of each to whom I speak, and in the mouth of each who speaks unto me. This day be within and without me, lowly and meek, yet all powerful. Christ is a light, Christ is a shield, Christ beside me on my left and my right. Well, let's begin with uh, who the heck are the Celts? So what's intriguing about this, um, this story is that there was no one well-defined Celtic people or Celtic people groups. Really, the Celtic peoples were uh, a set of uh, European uh, and specifically North, Central and Northern European groups that, see, that spoke common languages in the 1,000-ish years BC to around the time uh, of Jesus' arrival. And uh, so this map shows you essentially kind of the, the yellow is early, what they call proto-Celtic peoples and the expansions of those peoples out uh, to the east and to the west, uh, expanding as far as um, Northwestern Spain through France into England, into Ireland and, and Scotland as well. At the time of um, the Jesus moment, um, the Celtic peoples had been pushed back to the edges of, of the uh, Roman Empire by, uh, with the expansion of, of Rome. And in the three, four, five hundred years after Jesus, um, there were pockets of Celtic language speaking peoples in northern Spain, in France, northern France, in northern England, Scotland, Ireland, but they were being pushed away from the civilized empire. In fact, if you know the story of Hadrian's Wall in Scotland, that was the wall that the, that the Roman army built um, between England and, and Scotland to keep the Pictish peoples, the modern day Scots, um, out of the Roman army's hair. So um, Rome was never able to conquer the Picts, um, but they built a big wall to keep the other away from them. And um, the Pictish peoples were then <laughs> super interesting folks. You know, if you've seen the, the stereotypes of, of Scottish warriors, Pictish warriors who would paint their, you know, who would go into battle um, uh, strip naked with their bodies painted blue and emerging out of the fog in the morning, those were the Picts. Their job was to, <laughs> was to confuse and terrify their enemies. What was even more fun about the Pictish peoples is that they went into battle with the Romans, uh, both men and women. And so, um, the, the uh, Roman armies didn't like seeing the arrival of, of, um, of Pictish folks in battle. Ireland and uh, Northern England, Scotland were never um, conquered by the Romans. And so um, uh, those Celtic language people groups stayed um, intact while Rome, uh, while Rome came. And so what we think of today as Celtic spirituality is really um, a community of folks between the, like the fifth and the 12th centuries that were uh, you know, shared some common language, some common um, identity, but we're very different peoples in very different places, very different nations. This is a picture of um, what happens with Christianity as Christianity has come into um, Ireland and Scotland in those years. Essentially, as, um, as Christianity comes to England with the Roman army, um, it also comes to Ireland through um, sailing traders that uh, are involved in the tin trade and in, in another trade. 
um, was really um, uh, a community of folks who were coming from the Mediterranean. They were trading into England, uh, Wales on the west coast of England, Scotland, and, and Ireland. And what happens in, in the 500 to 1,000 years after the, after the death of Jesus is that the Christian story comes into those Celtic language speaking places in a way that's indigenous and like localized to them. And they send missionary monks back into the rest of the world and back into Europe um, and beyond. And so um, there's, this, there's this movement of uh, Rome pushing the Celtic peoples back to the edge of the empire and Christianity arriving partly with Rome and also partly through the desert monks in the, in the Mediterranean areas that then brings Christianity back into Europe as well. And what happens when that flavor of Christianity comes is it's a type of Christianity that grows in those areas um, in a way that um, has some commonalities that, that are fairly unique to us today. Partly because that Christianity grows outside the bounds of the Roman Empire. And so it's a Christianity and a, and a Christian spirituality that grows uh, in a way that's unique to the local lands more than it is um, inherited from Rome in particular. So there's a flavor of Christian spirituality that we call Celtic spirituality today that, is, um, that starts with um, the being separated from uh, empire and, uh, and then also focuses on a God who is both transcendent, other, different from us, but also imminent, like the God of the normal and every day is part of what grows as an understanding in these places. The spirituality of the Christianity that grows is indigenous and local. There's a tradition that, that happens with Patrick and then the missionaries who come after Patrick, especially into Ireland, where they don't um, seek to, to like um, um, transform the local cultures with, with the practices of Rome or the practices of empire but they seek to go find the, um, the belief systems of the people that they are evangelizing and, um, and transform them to the apostles. There's a baptism of the former practices as Christianity comes into Ireland and into Scotland. It's a tradition that the balance is the sacred and secular. And so there's, uh, you know, there, there, ends, there ends up being this very little division or no division between how we feel on a Sunday morning and how we feel on a Tuesday afternoon in terms of what we think God may be up to. It's a way that's led by both men and women. In fact, um, even though the, the culture was very patriarchal, it was a culture that valued women as leaders. And so you get um, stories of women like Bridget and Ita and Hilda who are highly regarded in this, in this model. It was evangelistic and it was missional and it was charismatic. It was a, a story and a, a, a beauty and an art-based way of being. Um, and it was a way that recognized both the inherent goodness of humanity alongside our deep need for healing. So the, the dominant understanding of the core of humanity for much of this tradition is that we are made um, in the model of original blessing. God has created us and we were good, uh, but we are also born into a, a world in which um, the sin and brokenness and evil exists, and we are tainted by that along the way. Um, but because we are born initially good, and so is the rest of the world around us, we are kin with the rest of creation, and therefore um, alongside um, the rest of nature and the rest of creation. 
Uh, and there's lots more that I could say about that and what that means for the core of humanity. But I would say, um, as we kind of touch on this tonight, imagine what it would look like if the people you um, see on the screen next to you uh, and the people that you share your home with uh, and the people that you see at the grocery store um, were at their core being inherently good, but living in a broken world, rather than if you see them as inherently broken and in need of, um, in need of salvation. Salvation happens in both, in both ideas, but what happens to the person I'm sitting with is at their very, very, very core good, rather than at their very, very, very core completely uh, wrong. Um, the other piece that, um, that you see in this tradition is, excuse me, a highly relational model where um, it, it can be both individual and community-based, but there's, a, there's an idea of the Anamkara, which is Gaelic for soul friend, um, wherein in any community, village, church, um, you have a soul friend who you work with who is responsible for helping you to grow in, in the way of following God. And, um, and so it's a very like deeply relational um, way of uh, being together. Uh, and then uh, we'll talk more about prayer in a, in a little bit, but, um, but it's, a, it's a tradition that grows um, with a, um, a high value in prayer for everyday activities, in care of creation, in story, and in creativity. So that's the flavor of um, Christian spirituality that grows in these lands in the 5th, 6th, 7th through 12th century, and then um, continues to, to kind of return for us today. And to help us understand that, I want to talk with you briefly about three, three of the people who, um, who you may or may not recognize from this tradition. This is Patrick. Of course, I've got to talk about Patrick today, the day after uh, St. Patty's Day. Uh, and I hope that you're sitting back with, you know, some of your leftover Guinness from whatever didn't happen yesterday um, and enjoying this, this piece of the conversation. Um, I, I use this image of Patrick because it's the most wild and untamed one. And I think that we tend to, Patrick's a, Patrick's a complicated character. Um, there is much known about him historically because he left behind um, his own uh, biography and uh, some letters um, that he wrote to uh, local political figures that um, show a lot of his belief system and, and uh, who he was. And yet, um, because he's so highly revered in early Irish history, there's been a large hagiography, a large like um, um, storytelling mythology that's grown up around him. And so much of what we believe that we know about him <laughs> isn't necessarily accurate. We know that he lived in the fifth century. The dates of his birth and death are highly unreliable and they're highly argued, partly because um, they're just highly argued for, <laughs> for reasons that are entertaining. If you don't know the story of Patrick, here's the short version of it. Patrick is not Irish, but Patrick was either English or Welsh, perhaps Scottish. We know that he was born and living somewhere on the west coast of, of the, the British Isles. And uh, as a young teenager was taken in, in a night raid by Irish slavers. So they, uh, they took him um, in the middle of a night, tossed him in a boat and took him to, to Ireland. And somewhere on the west coast of Ireland, he served uh, around seven years as um, an enslaved um, livestock tender. Basically he fed the pigs for a local chieftain. And um, 
he had been born into a family which, you know, his dad was something like a town councilor and his grandpa was something like a local, you know, church leader. Uh, and they were, you know, moderate wealth. Um, but he describes for himself that he had no like inherent faith of his own. But when he was enslaved, he learned to pray. And he learned to pray at night. He learned to pray kind of watching the stars. He learned to pray, you know, keeping himself safe as he was feeding the pigs. And he grew his own faith um, during that time. And the story goes that, that around seven years after he was enslaved, he had a dream at night that told him to walk back to the East Coast to go to a port and he would be able to go home. And so he walked across the countryside, um, 150 miles, perhaps something like that, uh, and talked his way aboard a ship um, with some complexity <laughs> and uh, got on board the ship and the ship uh, was beset by storms and likely was beached somewhere in Northern France. Um, he and his crew survived and he eventually made his way back home to, to his village on the West coast of let's say Wales. Or we can say England, that's okay. Um, he thought he was safe and comfortable uh, because he had survived his problems. Uh, but he, um, not long after he was back home again, had another dream um, during which um, an Irish um, person called out to him and asked him to return back to, um, to Ireland to bring the story of, of God back to the people. And uh, so he woke up and um, uh, wrestled with that challenge. And along the way, decided he wanted to return as a missionary back to those, to those Irish people who had enslaved him and went through training, went through monastic training in Northern France and some other training in England, and then was sent back by his local church um, into Ireland. He was likely sent back there um, because the Irish were seen as too barbaric for a mission a movement. And so why not send somebody who we've lost, <laughs> lost once already, basically, we know that Patrick wasn't the first missionary back to Ireland. We know that there were others before him, but he's well known as the person who stayed and helped uh, to bring Christianity to the, to the people. He's known as the apostle to the Irish today. Um, he's well worth studying. He's a historically very complex figure, um, but reading the stories of him are, are super intriguing. Uh, the second person to just touch on briefly is Bridget of Kildare. Bridget was called Mary of the Gael, Mary of the, of the, of the Gaelic um, or Celtic language speaking peoples. She lived uh, about half generation after Patrick. There's a possibility that she was a Christian convert from one of Patrick's missionary movements through, you know, missionary journeys through Ireland. Um, Bridget is a fascinating woman. She's, um, she is one of the three, actually Patrick, Bridget, and Columba, who we'll see next, are the three kind of most highly failed figures in Ireland in particular. Um, Bridget is um, where in America, Patrick is super well known. Um, in Ireland, my sense is that Bridget is a much more popular person than, than Patrick was. Uh, Bridget is a fiery, feisty, powerful woman who established monasteries and communities that were based upon hospitality and welcome to the poor. Um, she was amazingly courageous, stood up to power several times over her life. Um, one of the stories that is told of her is that she goes to a local king when she is trying to establish her little religious community. And she says, I, you know, I want some land for my, for my abbey. And uh, he mocks her and says, fine, I'll give you as much land for your, for your um, 
monastic community as your cloak can cover. And so she <laughs> takes the cloak off of her back, throws it on the ground, and it spreads from horizon to horizon. Um, so there's lots of you know great um, mythological stories about Bridget. Um, Bridget um, Bridget is a is an amazing figure. She um, echoes a figure also named Bridget in the pre-Christian story, who was a fire goddess and one of the daughters of the uh, like the pre-Christian pagan gods in that mythology tradition. And so much of what you read when you look at Bridget is this mingling of what happens before Christianity comes as Christianity is there and then as Christianity is spreading through through um, the south of Ireland. You can visit um, Kildare today where uh, Bridget established a community of women who tended uh, an eternal flame. Um, when you go to Dublin, it's only an hour or an hour and a half, maybe not even that, not quite an hour outside of outside of Dublin on the freeway. Um, Bridget's a fascinating person to learn from. Um, Columba is the third person I want to just briefly introduce you to. Um, Columba was born in Northern Ireland. Um, he's called Columkill or Dove of the Church. His name was Columkill um, or Dove of the Church. He's known to us as Columba. He lives again about another generation or half generation in the late 500s past Bridget. And the brief story with Columba is he um, he's born into a royal like you know, small family. Um, and um, he uh, is exiled from Ireland as a young man um, because he, he's essentially involved in a, in a copyright infringement problem. So he's like sneaking into a chieftain's tent during the nighttime and taking that chieftain's copy of um, the written Psalms and taking them at night and copy them himself and then bringing them back in the next morning. And one day he doesn't get the, <laughs> the Psalms back in time. And so there's a dispute about who owns this uh, book that Columba has been copying a text from uh, because he wants to have his own copy of the Psalms and, and then move on to the gospels. And um, that dispute over who owns the book turns into a battle and so some couple dozen people are killed in these in these uh, two families that are that are battling which seems like a very silly reason for people to break out swords and kill each other but it happened and columba um, was exiled from ireland with the story that he could never see foot or set his eyes on the on ireland again and so he uh, takes with him 12 friends and they get into a boat and they sailed north um, from the northwest coast of Ireland where he had grown up um, in the Derry area and um, sailed to these little islands kind of in the Scottish Inner Hebrides. And they would land on one island, climb to the top point of the island and look back and say, you know, can I see home again? And if they could, they got back in their boat and sailed north again. And they did that a couple of times and they landed on the island of Iona, which I'll tell you about more in just a second. From Iona, Columba and his 12 disciples established a little um, monastic community uh, that became home for him and the home from which Christianity then moves into northern Scotland and back into England and then back to Europe. So Columba, who starts his career as, um, <laughs> as uh, a person who gets in trouble and uh, sees people killed because he is copying the Psalms illegally um, is uh, regarded as the person who brings Christianity into 
um, into Northern Ireland, but also into Scotland as well. So three places that become important for this way along the way. This is uh, Columbus Bay on Iona. So the story I just told you about Columba bringing his folks to land on, uh, on Iona Island happens here uh, in this little bay. Um, this is the southern, uh, um, the southern area, the southern kind of tip of Iona Island. And there's a little rocky outcropping down there. And when you go to Iona today, you can, you should, um, A, you should go to Iona, but B, you should go to, uh, to take a walk down to this little bay. This is called Columbus Bay or, or Bay of New Beginnings. What happens in this little place is, so first of all, Iona is an amazing place. It feels complete, profoundly spiritual for whatever reason. But in this particular place, in this particular little, little bay, um, Columba and his folks who had been exiled from Ireland, been exiled from home, were told they could never see their families again, um, landed their boat. And when they saw that they couldn't see homeland again, they dug, a, they dug a hole in those stones down there. They turned their boat upside down. They buried the boat under the rocks and they set it on fire so that the boat was both buried and set on fire so they couldn't return home again. They're filled with shame. They're filled with this sense that we have really, really screwed up. And um, we cannot live the rest of our lives, um, um, you know, like as we live the rest of our lives, we'll be marked, marked with shame for the rest of our life. But what happens in that place that they don't know is that they're beginning a new way. They're beginning new lives together. And they go and they establish this monastery and they go back and they work uh, with the local Druidic peoples and then the Pictish peoples and they send missionary folks back into England. And that Bay of New Beginnings becomes the launching point for a new way of being. When you go to Columbus Bay now, the tradition is that you walk kind of down that little you know, path and you uh, go over to the rocks on the beach and you find two rocks um, that are on the beach that call your name or capture your attention. And you take one of those rocks and you um, let it represent all of your hurt and pain and brokenness and shame. And you throw it as far as you can into the ocean. And remember that all those things are gone in our relationship with, with God and Jesus. And you take the other rock and you put it in your pocket. And you remember um, that launch of new beginnings for you. That's the, that's the tradition on Columbus Bay. What also happens is that, at least in my experience, you take as many rocks back home as will fit in your suitcase and as will like pass the airport, um, you know, scales so that you can give those rocks to other people as well. So, you know, one of my rocks is at my desk and I have one at work. And um, you have this physical tactile reminder that whatever has come before you, um, whatever you've experienced before doesn't define the rest of your life. And I love that about Columbus Bay, the Bay of New Beginnings. So the second place I wanna to talk to you about is Lindisfarne, where uh, Iona, the previous places on the Southwest coast of Scotland, North of England in the Inner Hebrides. Iona is, uh, sorry, Lindisfarne is uh, Northeastern England just south of the Scottish border. And when you, you can see on the top um, image that 
it's an island that has kind of a sandy spit. So uh, Lindisfarne is only maybe half a mile across at the most. Um, and the, it's a tidal island. And that means that when the tides are low, there's a little sandy spit that you can walk across or you can drive across. And when the tides come back up again, the island is disconnected from the mainland. And you get there, you know, nowadays you get there by, uh, you can take a train north from London or a train south from, from Edinburgh or from Glasgow. And that train will stop in a, in a little town called Berwick-upon-Tweed, you know, small city. And then you take a bus from there across the tidal island and you take the bus during the times that the tides will allow you to take the bus and you return whenever the bus wants to go because the bus can only go when the tides are down. So on the bottom left, you can see as the tides are coming up, that's the road <laughs> and you can walk or you can drive across that road. Um, all of the businesses on the island have tidal tables so you can see when you can be on the island and when you can't. And every year there's somebody like you'll see in the bottom right who has pushed the, their luck with the time of the tides and um, think that they can make it back across before the tides get them. And every year um, the Royal Coast Guard has to come out and rescue folks you know, through, through helicopters because people have, um, um, have uh, just taken too much time to get back, back across the mainland again, to the mainland again. What, what Lindisfarne, and Lindisfarne is, is uh, particularly interesting in this story because um, it's also called Holy Isle to the English. So um, a few hundred years after Columba establishes a monastery on Iona, um, the king of Northumbria of this area, northeastern England, is exiled back to uh, Iona. There's been a revolt amongst his people in Northumbria. He goes back to Iona, um, um, stays safe with the monks there, learns the language there, learns more about Christianity there. And then when he learns that it's time for him to come back home because his military forces have you know, regained the throne for him, he comes back and he establishes his castle just just south of this island. You can actually see it from the island. And uh, as his power solidifies, he sends a word back to the folks on Iona and says, I want you to bring the story of Christianity back to the people here. I want you to bring them back to the people of Northumbria, the Angles and the Saxons. So send me monks. And there's a couple of um, you know, attempts at bringing the story of Christianity back to the Northumbrians. But the, the, the short version of the story is that uh, a monk named Aidan comes from Iona back to Lindisfarne. And as he comes back to Lindisfarne, or he comes back to Northumbria, he decides he wants to establish his monastery, not in the castle or in the village around the castle where he will have political power, but he wants to be separated from that political power. So he goes to Northumbria and he establishes a little monastery there and you can see monastic ruins there from later in history than this. And, a little, and another little castle kind of on the southwest coast of the island. He goes there because he knows that he can um, bring the story of Christianity to the people in Northumbria, the Angles and the Saxons, um, if he balances the opportunity of being aligned with the king alongside not being you know, swayed by the power of the king. So he knows that if he can be geographically separate from the king, he can have his own you know, way of being. So what happens with Lindisfarne is that it's an island that is in balance. When the tides are down, you know, nowadays it's a destination for people in England. People will go to Holy Island for the weekend. 
you know, it's a, it's a pretty little place. Um, and there are crowds that are thriving in the island when the tides are down. But when the tides are coming back up, people go back to the mainland and it's a quiet place. So it's this mix of action and contemplation. It's this mix of work and of rest. And it's this mix of engagement and withdrawal. And for, for many of us who find either action or contemplation easy, but not both, or find work or rest easy, but not both, or who find engagement easy or withdrawal easy, but not both, Lindisfarne reminds us that we are not in control of our situations. Like the people in the, in the car on the bottom right, you're not in control of the tides of your life. You're in control of how you respond and prepare and plan. Um, and I think that the contemplative life is really about this, this mix of action and contemplation, this mix of work and rest, this mix of engagement and withdrawal, especially because I, I find one part of those pairing attractive and one part of that pairing difficult. And it's the difficult thing that's my, that's my learning edge, my leading edge that I have to spend more time with. For me, it's weird because at work, I find it easier to be active and less you know, easy to be contemplative. At home, I find it much easier to be contemplative and, and harder to be in action. And so I have different <laughs> impulses at play there. But for me, Lindisfarne is this reminder that I don't control the elements in my life, but I can work with them in a way that gives me a rhythm to my life. So that's Lindisfarne. Uh, the last place that I want to talk to you about is Skellig Michael. And this is really the ends of the earth. So Skellig Michael is uh, an island, actually part of a, a small grouping of islands off the southwest coast of, of Ireland. So first we were in southwest Scotland, then England, and now southwestern Ireland. Uh, around the Ring of Kerry, if you know kind of where that is, it's one of three World Heritage Sites in Ireland. And, and it's seven miles off of the shore. It's really seven miles outside of port. There's a little tiny fishing village called Port McGee on the Southwest coast that acts as the docking station for, for this place. And for a few hundred years, there were um, up to 12 monks living in six beehive stone huts that were living here at the end of the earth, practicing their faith. They were living on bird's eggs and seaweed and a little bit of gardening and whatever birds they could and fish they could catch and capture. They were, they were trying to find a way that they could completely focus on the work of God in their lives. This place is inhospitable, <laughs> to say the least. I can't quite imagine, you know, my wife and I've been married for 27 years now. And like many couples, we have ongoing, uh, let's say, conversations about what temperature the thermostat should be set at. So I, I like the thermostat to be normal, like, you know, 68 degrees, maybe. She likes all year round for there to be air conditioning in our bedroom. And so I'm always cold at nighttime. And I wake up in the morning and I see, and I also will notice that she turns off our thermostat, like our entire heater for the house um, at nighttime all year round. So I'll come downstairs sometimes and it's like 50 degrees downstairs in a December or January morning. And on one hand, I'm frustrated because that's super cold. On the other hand, I think, you know, 50 degrees inside the house isn't all that cold. I could be living in a stone beehive hut, 
with one other person and things would be much worse. But that part of my body typically doesn't win the argument. But there were some dozen people who lived here for a few hundred years who survived several raids by the Vikings until, um, until they finally decided the Vikings have won and they moved their small community back to the mainland. You see here some of those beehive huts. There was a common area where they had essentially a kitchen and another common area at the end of this walkway where they had essentially a little church building. But they spent their entire time there working and praying, working to survive and praying together. In the distance, you see um, an island called Lesser Skellig. Uh, so Skellig Michaels over on here, Lesser Skellig is there. And then you can see the coast, the southwest coast of Ireland in the background there. To get here, you have to go from that port to this island and you can not really see, but in the middle of this island is a small dock that it used to be that if you could, that you would have to like convince a fisherman in Port McGee to stop fishing for the day, pay him instead to take you out to the, to the dock. And then from the dock to get to the top, it's a 620 uh, stone step staircase that you can see a little bit off to the, to the left here. Um, and uh, this is the North Atlantic. And, um, you know, there's always storms in the North Atlantic, no matter what time of year it is. And um, your best, you know, your best of luck is maybe half of the days that you want to go to Skellig Michael, can you, based upon the weather. Um, it's a, it's kind of a bucket list thing for people who are, uh, you know, into, into going to odd places. But recently, the place has become more popular. <laughs> so you may, you may recognize those, um, those buildings from, uh, from the new Star Wars stuff. So this is where Luke Skywalker goes to hide um, at the end of uh, you know, two movies ago. And this is where Ray goes to find him. So for those of you who are uh, introverts like me, you may be looking at this place saying, you know, this is the best place to go hide, although people will still come find me. But they filmed, um, they filmed, um, they filmed these scenes of, um, of Ray finding Luke Skywalker on Skellig Michael. And as a result of that, there, and there's a, you know, there's a pretty burgeoning film industry in Ireland. Um, and and this, is a, this is a part of it these days. As a result of that, it's way easier for people to get to this place uh, to the extent that people are leaving behind you know, trash and you know, taking stones from those steps and causing some problems. And so the Skellig um, um, area has been uh, off limits during the quarantine, the COVID quarantine but it's about to be reopened again. And so there's a lot of discussion about what does it mean for people to engage with this heritage tradition um, that also has a modern tradition here as well. Um, and I, I show you that place also to talk with you about um, how do we live in community and how do we live alone? And um, you know, for many of us, those two things can be in tension with each other. And it can be easier for us to live in community and it can be easier for us to live alone. I wanna to read to you two prayers that help to feed that, uh, those ideas. The first is um, again from the Corimila community. This is a prayer for groups. God of groups, you are within and beyond all of our borders. Our names for you, our words about you, our gatherings, our stories about you. We seek to praise, but sometimes we imprison. May we always be curious about what is beyond borders. 
going there gently, knowing you have always been there. We ask this because we know that you are within and beyond all our groups and our stories. Amen. And a prayer for solitude. This one from the same book that Nikki read from, which is John O'Donohue's To Bless the Space Between Us. The prayer for solitude said this, the blessing for solitude. May you recognize in your life the presence, power, and light of your soul. May you realize that you are never alone, that your soul and its brightness and belonging connects you intimately with the rhythms of the universe. May you have respect for your individuality and your difference. May you realize that the shape of your soul is unique, that you have a special destiny here, that behind the facade of your life, there's something beautiful and eternal happening. May you learn to see yourself with the same delight, pride, and expectation with which God sees you in every moment. Blessing for solitude. So, I, I talked with you about three people in this, um, in this, in this way of being and about three places in this way of being. And I want to talk to you now about three practices, really clusters of practices in this way of being um, that I think fit into the Celtic and contemplative well. Uh, the first, I can't decide if the first practice about is about breathing or moving. You can decide for me at the end. Um, but it, it in, includes things like uh, kinship with nature, um, interaction with landscape and thin spaces. Uh, we'll look at that first. We'll look about uh, contemplative practices in creation and creativity around poetics and story and song. And then we'll look specifically about prayer. So first, um, breath and movement. One of the things I love about this way of being is um, the idea of thin spaces or thin places. In the, in the Celtic tradition, in the Celtic story, there are places and there are times and there are people, but let's just say places for now, that are called thin. And that means that the veil that we often perceive between um, the holy and the not holy are so thin as to be non-existent. The veils that we see between God and ourselves are so thin as to be non-existent. The, the, the veil between the, the glorious transcendence of God and the normal part of life are so thin as to be non-existent. And the places that are called thin places or thin spaces other places that people often go pilgrimage to. So, you know, Skellig Michael or, or Iona or Lindisfarne um, or Jerusalem or Rome uh, can be thin places. But I found that for many of us, there are oftentimes other thin places, places that we just for some reason perceive the presence of God, the Trinity. Sometimes there's re we know why, 
you know, it could be that there's a tradition of people there, there's a tradition of prayer there, there's a place where people have been praying for generations and, and, and eons. And sometimes it's just places that just feel right. Like I have a particular, I live in uh, North Bend. So this is I-90 just out past Issaquah and kind of, it's the little town um, most eastward on 90 before you start climbing up in the Snoqualmie Pass. And I grew up in Northwest Montana. So this place feels kind of like Montana to me. And there are a couple of places uh, near where I live that are down along the river that I can just sit on the rocks down by the river and watch the river go. And they feel like thin places because when I go there, they're not only restful, but they're filled with God's presence and they're filled with God's delight in me. And I love to go there because I need to feel that delight. And I love to go there because there's always a surprise happening. And, and, and part of what's beautiful about that for me is that I, you know, I work in software and I teach Christian spirituality. And so I live in the world of my mind oftentimes. And, I, and it, it's important for me to live in the world of my body as well. So to get there, I have to walk. I have to breathe hard. I have to, you know, get my, you know, blood flowing on my legs and my feet. And I have to sit on the rocks, which are not, you know, the most comfortable things, but I get to be in the presence of God by knowing that I have a body. And I think that's super important for me, perhaps for us as well. In the same, you know, breath and movement practices, this idea of creation as, as kin and as part of nature, I, you know, I alluded to this earlier, I'll tell you a little bit more about this in a second, but in, in especially in the early traditions, and I think nowadays as well, um, the view of who we are in relationship with creation is not that we are um, created to be in dominance over the rest of the world that God has created, but that we're created as kin and as peer to the rest of creation. And so therefore, you know, I'm, I might learn who God is from observation of, of the seasons and the wind and the tides and watching the plants grow and bud on my shelf. And they may also speak to me as well. Uh, and I'll talk to you about that more in just a second here. Um, the third kind of sub-practice in body and movement is, is body, just body prayer. When I've found for myself, so, you know, my, briefly, my, um, my religious tradition or spiritual tradition is I, I grew up, I mentioned that my, you know, my dad was kind of the, the, the son of a Irish Catholic German Methodist woman in, in when grandma and grandpa got married, that was a mixed marriage. And so uh, they were not allowed to be married by either their priest or their Methodist minister. And so they got married by the justice of the peace. And uh, they crafted their own prayer life over the years, but didn't really ever have a church tradition um, together because they weren't allowed in each other's churches then. My dad in, you know, grew up in that tradition and didn't go to church until he had this amazing like transformational experience with, with, uh, with Jesus when he was in his early 40s, and I was like 14. Um, and along the way, but my mom, you know, had grown up in the Catholic church. And so we were always going to Catholic mass with mom. And one of the things I love about Catholicism, you know, no longer there, but one of the things I love is that you pray with your body, even if it is standing, kneeling, sitting, kneeling, standing, it's the, what folks call Catholic gymnastics at times. You pray with your body and you pray with your senses. And that's a difficult thing, I think, for, for many of us in, in more contemporary traditions. When I read the, the prayer from St. Patrick's Breastplate, which includes, includes Christ on my left and on my right, I love to 
not just say the words, but to imagine a wonder into what it really means that the word which spoke creation into being is here and is here. What does it mean? What does it mean that, that God the powerful is above me and below me and before me and behind me and on my left and on my right? That means something very different to me than just thinking the words. And so I found that uh, bodied prayer, you know, walking around my neighborhood, praying for my neighbors, walking into my kids' rooms and praying for my kids um, um, shows me an aspect of my humanity that, that just thinking words <laughs> doesn't show me. And those practices also then speak to this idea of pilgrimage, where pilgrimage is intentional or unintentional journey in search of the sacred. I've found, you know, I've gone on, I've been blessed and fortunate to be able to go to some amazing places in my, in my, in my life. And sometimes I'm going in pursuit of God and sometimes I'm going and I accidentally discover that God is there. And I didn't think that, that God would be. And that's pilgrimage. And for me, that's a movement practice or a practice that involves my breath as well. And breath, of course, is a, it, breath, of course, invites us into contemplative practice as well, because we have rhythms of breathing in and breathing out. We have rhythms of praying breath prayer in the contemplative form of breathing of breathing in a practice of God and exhaling something that we want to release. And those types of breath and body prayers can be powerful for those of us who can be um, disjointed between our mind and body. This is a, an early quote from um, one of the best known, probably one of the two best known um, theologians in, the, in this set of traditions. This is John Scotus Eugenia, who was a third century uh, theologian. His particular interest was on um, the beginning of the book of John, that in the beginning was the word uh, peace. And uh, if you read him, he has this like expansive commentary about, about what does it mean for, for, <laughs> for God to have come into the neighborhood. But he had this, this idea that he said that Jesus wears two shoes in the world. He wears the shoes of scripture and of nature. He says that both of them are necessary to understand God to understand the Lord. And at no stage can creation be seen as a separation of the things of God. In other places, he calls this the idea of the big book of creation and the little book of scripture. And what he's, what he's saying is that we understand who God is in the biblical text, partly by reflecting upon how God shows up in the created world. And as we, and we understand who God is in the created world, partly by reflecting on who God is in the, in the biblical text. And I think that that's helpful for us to recognize, but what's even more powerful for me in, in Ariogena is a recognition that we don't just see God in the book and we don't just see God in nature, but it's in combining those, those experiences of God together that we see the whole reality of God. The big book of creation, the little book of the scripture, or the two shoes, the left and right shoe of, of scripture and nature as well. This is a later um, uh, catechism later in the eighth century. This is St. Ninian who was uh, like um, Columba uh, evangelizing the Picts and the Scots again. In that catechism, the question is what's the fruit of study? 
And the answer for the catechism is to perceive the eternal word of God reflected in every plant and insect, every bird and animal, every man and woman. Now, for me, I don't know about for you, but for me, I can see the word of God in, um, in uh, butterflies and in um, uh, hummingbirds, uh, but I have a more difficult time seeing the word of God in snakes, even in the blue jays, because they're obnoxious in my yard. I can perceive the eternal word of God in the men and women that I agree with. And I have a difficulty seeing the eternal word of God in the men and women who uh, I think are wrong or violent or mean or whatever. And what St. Ninian is saying is we can perceive God in all of the created world, in the stuff that we like and the stuff that we don't like. So a question I have for you then um, is where do you experience the presence of God the most? Maybe um, there's enough of us here. Let's do this maybe in chat. If you're near the chat, think about, if you're near the chat, you can respond to this in chat, but think about where do you go when you need to experience the presence of God? Is there a place? Is there a location? Is there a person? And you can type, you can type that here. The water, the water, the ocean, sunsets, mountains, trees. Galbraith Mountain. The forest. Yeah. You know, for and keep you can keep uh, typing these in. For you know, for many of us, that you know, there are sacred experiences in the building of the church. Um but that's not where all of us go. Uh, and it's not true for all of us either. And so for those of us, especially who are leaders in the church, who are pastors and teachers in the church, th this answer can be difficult for us to um, process through. Yeah, visiting someone in jail, uh, giving out food um, when uh, I'm with folks who are hungry, I, I, absolutely. For me, hearing like hearing the giggling voices of I have a little niece who's three and hearing her giggling, totally there. My 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 question, my challenge to us is: How do we incorporate that sense of the presence of God in the way that we live? Like, how do we intentionally go and be in these places, whether they are out in the mountains, being with people in jail? Uh, going to see the tides come in and come out, um, giving food to folks who need it. My, my sense for myself and for many of us is that we, we unintentionally live our lives. And it's much more difficult to intentionally choose to practice the pursuit of God and the pursuit of the presence of God. And that pursuit of presence may very well be um, Bible study in the mornings, and, you know, and, and, and reading my prayers um, aloud. And it may very well be um, keeping in mind the things of God while I go sit by the river and read the Psalms. And my experience is that God is open to those possibilities because God's created those possibilities within me. In the, um, 
the story, I, I thought I had put notes for this um, uh, somewhere along the way, but some of the most entertaining stories in, in, the, in the Celtic tradition are of um, uh, people um, praying <laughs> while in nature. So, you know, this is, a, this is a tradition in which there's not a lot of like indoor heated, you know, um, you know indoor heaters and, you know, and electric lights or whatever, especially early. And so there's a lot of stories of people going to pray the Psalms. Aiden, who goes to Lindisfarne, his prayer practice is to wade out, <laughs> is to wade out into the North Atlantic, and spread his arms and recite the Psalms. I thought this was super cool. Actually, when I went to Iona, I thought I'm going to go do this. So went to Iona, and decided I'm going to go do what you know what Columba did, uh, also wading out into the middle of the Atlantic and uh, you know wading up to my chest and opening my arms and reading and you know reciting Psalms. <laughs> and I got, I got up to my shin, and I was cold. And decided I can't do this anymore. These people are much more manly than I am. Um, but there was a sense of like that's an embodied practice of prayer. It's a it's a way to incorporate all of my being. There's another set of stories about a, a saint I love um, named Kevin. Kevin um, built a community of Christians in Glendalock, which is that first. Um, you know, um, uh, picture that I showed you of the little stream and and the green glades and Kevin was well known for his um, interaction with animals and so one there's many stories about him but one of the stories of him is he's he's standing in the lake that was near Clindalock praying he's got his arms open he's praying by reading and reciting the psalms and uh because the psalms were very important to this group of people he's reciting the psalms he has his hands open and a blackbird comes and lands in his hand and um, as he's praying, the blackbird builds a nest in his hand. And as he continues praying, the blackbird lays an egg in his hand. <laughs> and so he decides he would just keep praying until the egg hatches and the bird flies away. Now, a lot of the stories in this tradition may or may not have actually historically happened, but there's a, something of the essence of these people in these stories that I love. And there's another story of him that he's praying, of Kevin, he's praying, and um, he uh, accidentally drops his psalms book into the water but he's accompanied by an by an otter by a lake otter and the otter uh, retrieves his psalm book and hands it back to him so that he can continue to pray and they build a friendship between kevin and the otter and the otter then uh, over the years um, as kevin goes out into the lake the otter will go and fetch uh, a, a salmon for him and brings him a salmon every night so that as kevin is praying for himself and the otter the otter is feeding him fish that's where he practices the presence of God. Now, it doesn't happen to me very often, <laughs> but I love the idea of enacting my spiritual pursuit of God in a, in a way that has my body involved. So another uh, practice is uh, about creating. So in many of these stories, there's a tradition of beauty and singing songs and telling stories and reading poetry. I've never been anywhere else in the world where a Saturday night um, almost always includes going to the pub, telling stories together, listening to music and having people um, recite the poems that they've been working on every day. And like, you know, when you're hearing poetry recited by, uh, you know, by, stonemasons and by farmers like that's not something that happens in North Bend you know when I go to the pub in North Bend people aren't going to recite their poetry that scene is not is not cool enough or whatever 
but there's a creative tradition in this part of the world that also comes from um, this way of, of being with God. I think the best example of that is, is this. This is the Book of Kells. When you go to Dublin next, which of course everybody should go to Dublin. Dublin's not the coolest city in Ireland, but you should go there. Um, there's, a, uh, there's a display of this book at Trinity College in Dublin. You can go see this. This is the Book of Kells. Book of Kells is four of the, of the gospels uh, written in Latin on calf vellum in 340 folios and illuminated with um, calligraphy and, uh, and uh, this, this beautiful ink work. It's regarded as Ireland's greatest national treasure. It's the work of um, multiple artists over multiple generations coming from multiple monasteries. And it was one of the things that survived uh, multiple raids by, by the Vikings and then by Cromwell um, from England uh, later uh, to tell the story of who God had been with these people. It's an absolutely glorious book. It's, it's small. It's about the same size as the John O'Donohue book, um, thicker. Um, but it's amazing to see when you go to Trinity College every day, they've opened up a, new, a different page. Um, and it's amazing to see um, what happens. Partly because the artwork is beautiful, but partly because the stories that are told there are beautiful. So um, I, the left, I should say this folio is, this is representations of the four writers of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, and this is, um, this is Jesus, who I love in this tradition has a red goatee and red curly hair. So um, this is the Jesus figure. I think this, this Jesus, of course, would make uh, for a wonderful tattoo. Um, the, um, the, uh, the, Latin, the Latin words that are written on the text are decorated with just the whimsical creations of the, of the monks who were doing the copying that day. And you'll see in, those, in the copying, you know, um, you'll see people, you know, repeat words and sentences, you see a whole page repeated, you see um, uh, jokes, you see several dirty jokes, you see doodles everywhere. And this is my favorite image um, from the Book of Kells. What do you see here in this image on the right? Anybody have a guess at what they're looking at here? Cats playing, maybe. Yep. Yep. I think, Mona, I think you're at least part right. What else do you see? Nobody really knows for sure, but what most historians believe is that, and, and art historians believe, is that what you see on the left is a cat, what you see on the right is a mouse or a rat. And what it's in his mouth is, is the Eucharistic host. So um, the rat has stolen the, the rat has stolen the host, the cat's chasing the rat. And you have this, just this little doodle in between lines of the gospels. And there's a bunch of just pieces like this that are like these beautiful and odd decorative whimsical things. And what I love about the book of Kells is that in my society, it's, a, it's powerful to be efficient. Like the faster I can do things, the better. 
And, you know, if I can get, you know, I'm in nine hours of meetings a day. And if I can get through nine hours of 20 minute long meetings, that's better than if I'm getting through nine hours of 30 minute meetings or one hour meetings, because I'm doing more. When these monks are copying this book, they could have copied that book 10 times faster if they just wrote the words, if they just copied the words of the scripture. But it was more important to them that they make something which was beautiful, that had um, a different kind of value and that told their stories that included complaints that they're out of ink and complaints that it's too cold in this room and complaints about the person that they, about the other monk that they <laughs> that just relieved them from duty. Like there's a humanity and a beauty and a, and a, um, a sense of wonder that happens in this in a way that inspires me. And that's because there's this, um, there's this normalcy of us being co-creators with God and this playfulness with God. So another pair of questions for you for the chat. How are you a co-creator with God? How do you create? And how do you, how do you feel that God is helping you to create? And similarly, what does it feel like for you to play? For many of us, play is just for the kids. But for many of us, as we begin to age, we realize that play is for us. And we missed out <laughs> a lot along the way. And play becomes a spiritual practice for us as well. So how do you find yourself that you're a co-creator with God? And what does it feel like to play? Yeah. And singing. Yeah. Thanks, Becky. Absolutely. Painting and gardening and cooking. Yeah. Yeah. In the garden. God is a gardener. The stories of gardeners in the biblical texts are profound and we overlook them too easily. When you renovate a final tool, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. When you pray for healing for people that are broken, yeah. You're creating the past. My, my belief is that these practices of co-creation with God and of play are profoundly spiritual practices and profoundly prayerful practices that are good for us to embed in our lives. I want to let you keep thinking about that and, and move on um, to the last practice, the last practices of prayer specifically. What we know about Celtic prayer is, um, comes to us from some of the uh, manuscripts that, um, that have survived history, um, some inherited uh, traditions uh, of oral prayers being passed down through the generations. And um, a lot of what's in common about those prayers that we hear and that we read is that this, this is prayer that's involved with a God who is involved in the everyday of my life, a God who is here and now. And not like, and not a God who needs to be called into my place or called into presence, but a God who's already here and who's concerned with everyday activities such that I can pray as I'm opening my email and I can pray as I'm washing my dishes and that opening my email and washing my dishes can become acts of prayer for me as well. This is also practices of prayer that are rooted in place and rooted in time and the seasons that are reflection in creation or rooted in creation that recognize good and evil as well as original goodness that since that we are created in the beginning good um, but we live in a world in which there is evil certainly 
It's communal recognizing the presence of the saints, those who've gone before us, and those whose names we know and that we don't know. Oftentimes it's very Trinitarian, uh, you know, in the sense that Celtic spirituality is, is, is highly Trinitarian, uh, looking at God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Spirit in equal ways in which, um, which I think is a, is a healthy balance for us. And it can be very poetic and memorable. I, I want to read a couple of, a couple of uh, just simple prayers. Uh, this is, these are from a book called Celtic Prayers for Life Today from uh, Ray Simpson. Um, so he has a, a chunk of prayers that are just prayers for everyday activity. And this is a prayer for kitchens. Jesus, who helped Mary in the kitchen, may your spirit fill all who work in this place. May the washing up be done in a spirit of service. May the cooking be done in a desire to nourish. May there be glory in the middle of the chatter. Uh, clatter, but I guess the same thing. Um, uh, blessing for computers. Creator God, bless the surge that brings this computer to life. Savior God, edit out the trash and save that which is good. Spirit of God, give to me ordered records, creative thoughts, and life-giving words. They're, they're small things, but they're part of the everyday. And the reminder that God is part of my everyday is a powerful thing for me. I find for myself that pausing for a moment before I turn the key, ignition key on my car to thank God and to, and to recognize God's presence as I spin that engine to life is a powerful thing because um, I would otherwise skip past it. Or uh, thinking uh, and being with God as I brush my teeth in the mornings or as I take a shower or as I grind the beans for my coffee. Those are normal experiences of my life that if I didn't pause to recognize that God is in me, in them, they would go past me. So um, what I often do in, in classes, and Nikki, I think you may have seen this along the way, is, is I ask people to think about what's the normal like pattern of their Wednesday. Like what is when, you know, what makes Wednesday Wednesday for you? And what time do you wake up? What do you do when you first wake up? Um, you know, how do you, how do you get going in the morning? What's your routine in the bathroom? Like, you know, what do you eat for breakfast? Um, and think about, as you think through your day, that the regular part of your day, what are the things that seem either incredibly rote or just um, the things that pass by your mind without, without processing or that are most frustrating? Yeah, so that every space can be thin space, that, God, that we, we recognize the presence of God in all those places. Like I, I find myself, I, I need to remember God in the, and, and recognize that God is here in the things that I would just otherwise let pass by and not even know that they occurred. And so, you know, that's things like when I open my email in the mornings or when I brush my teeth, the things that don't feel holy can be profoundly holy because God is in them as well as, as reading the Psalms. But also when I get up in the morning and I have to pick up the dog poop because we have a year and a half old puppy who can go pee outside but has never quite figured out how to poop outside, that just makes me mad every day. So if I can discover the presence of God in those moments, 
then my life is different than it is if I just see the poop on the floor yet again, or better yet, step on it yet again, and begin, you know, my yelling and cursing and screaming experience. If those everyday activities are opportunities for prayer, then they're opportunities for me to understand and experience the presence of God. Becky, thanks for that recommendation. I, I have not seen that, but I like I like that idea. And you know, back to this John O'Donohue book, what I love about this is it's not really prayers, it's blessings. Um, it's blessings that are more poetic than, um, than um, you know, doctrinally correct or whatever. But they're, um, um, but because of that, they're so open and welcoming. And so there's like blessings for things that you don't think about they're needing to be blessings for. So um, for love in a time of conflict, a blessing for um, the, a friend on the arrival of illness, a blessing for death, in praise of water, for a blessing for an addict, a blessing for a prisoner. Uh, my favorite in here is a blessing for the family and friends of someone who passed away due to suicide. They're, they're moments that we don't otherwise think of as God-filled, and yet they are. Have you, do you know the practice of Lexio Divina, the sacred reading? So, you know, sacred reading um, is this experience of taking multiple passes through the biblical text and letting the text speak to us in a reflective way. It's, it's I think, one of the most common contemplative practices that there is. And two more practices that are like it that I want to um, recommend to you if you haven't seen them yet. One is Visio Divina, and oftentimes this is, instead of you know, looking at a reading biblical text or hearing biblical text, it is either looking at a painting or an icon or you know, um, a flower or something and discovering the presence of God, letting that thing speak to us. In the Celtic tradition, you know, finding things of beauty and letting that beauty and creation speak to us makes sense. Um, you can practice Lexio Divina at Seattle Art Museum. It's a fantastic thing to go do. It's really interesting to see how God speaks through the work of Renaissance painters or whatever. Um, the third practice is called Lexio Tierra. And I, I heard about this, read about this in a book by Belden Lane. And uh, Belden writes these wonderful, um, wonderful books about, um, about spiritual practice as we are, spiritual practice in the in deserts and mountains, spiritual practice as we're hiking and backpacking. And for him, Lexio Tierra is letting the land, is reading the land, but letting the land read us as well. Letting the space and the landscape read us as well. And to some extent, there's a bit of this in when I go down to the, to the river and just let the river speak and let God speak to me in the river. It's here that I want to make a small distinction. I think we're almost ready for lots of questions. Um, Celtic spirituality can be many things to many people. And because there was never a common like Celtic church and there isn't one today, it can be, uh, you know, it's, uh, it can be defined in, in many ways. And one of the ways that it can be defined today is, is in a way that is more like pantheism than I'm comfortable with. Pantheism is the perception that God is 
that God is the wind and God is the waves and God is the plant next to me and God is the other person next to me and God is me. And I don't see that in the biblical text. I don't see that in my experience of God either. That God is not those things. God is not contained by those things. But there's a different perspective called panentheism, which is this idea that God is in those things in creation, but not contained by them. So God is, you know, in the in the mountain and God is in the you know, the monstera that's over here and God's in the flowers and God's in my children and God's in my wife and God is in me, but I am not those, but God is not me and I am not God. And so I can perceive and recognize the sacred in the things of creation, but God's not contained by those things. God's not contained by time and by creation. And, and I think it's important for us to recognize that, that, that God is greater than the ways in which we perceive God. So one of the things I'd like for you to do is to think about those practices of prayer that are in the everyday, that are in creation, that are in nature, that are observing other people. And find one of those little rhythms in your normal everyday that either is frustrating for you or that's just boring for you and reimagine that by writing and practicing your own prayer around, you know, a prayer for opening up the pop can or a prayer for pouring your coffee or, you know, what would it look like if we all had an, a practice of prayer when we put our mask on, when we went to the grocery store? Um, how could that be a spiritual moment for us? rather than just a moment of inconvenience. So, um, where do we go from here? Uh, briefly, there are, um, you know, this tradition is an older tradition, uh, but also there are, you know, there are several contemporary communities who are, you know, continuing to, you know, echo the practices of these old, these old times in ways that make sense today. So. These three communities are um, based in Celtic lands, um, but um, are dispersed communities where people can, you know, continue to explore and practice these ways. Northumbria community has a wonderful book of prayer. Iona community is a wonderful justice-based community. Um, I participate with a community called Community of Aiden and Hilda, uh, which is based on Lindisfarne, but also has lots of folks in the U.S., including in the in the Northwest. And um, they're they're essentially um, kind of like their, their ways of belonging and uh, pursuing a spirituality that looks like this that also blends with my local church as well. I, I attend an Episcopalian church here in, in North Bend, and I've been in this community since I was in a little justice church and an evangelical church and a charismatic church and this one, and it all fits. So if you want to know more, you can, you can explore these, these communities. I highly recommend um, two of the uh, more contemporary writers and, and readers and poets in this tradition are John O'Donohue, which we've heard from before here, and Patrick Otuma. Oh, the third one that says O-Team, that's not right. Otuma is right. John O'Donohue um, wrote um, about 10 books in the 80s and early 90s before he passed away. He was an um, a Irish, uh, Irishman born in the west of Ireland in Connemara area, and um, 
a poet and a philosopher and did a PhD in philosophy in Tübingen in Germany and like super interesting guy left the priesthood got married um, and uh, you know wrote uh, for a good while till he died in his early mid 50s. Um, he's a wonderful storyteller and his best the, my best experience of him is both in to bless the space between us which is the book we've seen tonight and also in this um, podcast from on being. Um, which is called the inner landscape of beauty the, I mean on being as the podcast series they interviewed John O'Donohue and his episode was the inner landscape of beauty and it's I think the best exploration of a contemporary Celtic spirituality that works for everybody in a similar way um, Patrick Otuma I mentioned earlier he's a um, um, was part of the Corimila community that that peacemaking community that I read from for many years um, was born in Northern Ireland, um, uh, grew up in the Catholic church, um, but is a gay man and had, of course, difficulties in the Catholic church in Northern Ireland at the time, uh, continues to, uh, he's left the Catholic church um, um, and he's now in Republic of Ireland down in Cork. He's written amazing work and uh, he's a very poetic person, writes amazing poetry. He is uh, part of the staff at On Being, um, where he uh, did a, an interview called A New Imagination, a prayer that I recommend highly. And now he's doing another project with them called Poetry Unbound, which is like you know, five minute you know, recitations of somebody's poetry and then a little unpacking of what a poem means. And for those of us who like poetry and don't understand it, it's really, really good. So I'd love, I'd love to recommend both John and, and Patrick to you. Uh, if you like books as your kind of input, um, here's three that I love to use in, in any you know, Celtic spirituality tradition and in the, the class that I teach on Celtic at, at the school as well. Uh, the Left One Water from an Ancient Well is by Ken McIntosh. It's the best view of Celtic, modern Celtic spirituality for Americans in particular, um, which is really good. Uh, the Celtic Way of a Prayer by Esther DeWall, I, I love as a, pra as, a, as a look into prayer. Esther DeWall is well into her 80s now and she has written um, much about Benedictine spirituality and Celtic spirituality from the tradition from the uh, perspective of reflection in the land so she uh, lives in uh, on the borderlands between England and Wales today and she uh, writes um, well about the contemplative practices of spirituality and living in the borderlands and then John O'Donohue we've seen along the way as well uh, I want to leave you with this as a way that we discuss from here. Um, and I, I'd be, I'd be um, excited to open up discussions, questions, whatever, uh, after this. I think the best way for us to incorporate Celtic spirituality in our everyday life, whether we you know, think of ourselves as Irish Catholic inheritors or not, whatever, whether you can't wait to go back to Ireland like I can't, I, I really want to get through lockdown so I can go back and visit somehow again. Um, the fact of the matter is that this spirituality doesn't need to be based in Scotland, Ireland, Wales. It fits very well here in the Northwest. It fits very well in a modern day in which um, we are looking for a holistic way of living the story of God in a way that is not focused on um, power and influence. So um, here are some ways to do that. Spend time with the Gospels and the Psalms. The tradition of the Celts is a tradition of John, 
um, the Gospel of John, where the story of God it, um, it is that you know, kind of the image that's used a lot is that the the Celtic the Celtic way is the way of of John um, at the Last Supper leaning his head against the chest of Jesus and hearing the heartbeat of God. It's that imminent, uh, intimate presence. The Gospels and Psalms were the highlights of the of the books uh, of the texts for for these people, and I think that they can be for us as well too. Incorporate the rich tradition of prayer in everyday life. I love this challenge of seeing prayer and the things that I think of as boring. Uh, look for goodness and beauty around you in all of creation, in people, in the other, in the people who you dislike, and the people you love. Find a thin space that you can visit when you need presence. I don't know about you, but the fact that we are um, unable to journey very far means that I have a deeper longing for being in places where I feel um, grounded and with God the sacred. And that can happen certainly in my home and in my yard, as well as it can happen in Ireland. And I am or Scotland or, you know, Cannon Beach, which is another thin place for me. But there are thin places where we can encounter the presence of God in surprising locations, very near to us. Creature and liturgies of meaning making. Um, find, find ways to build meaning and uh, beauty into the normal everyday parts of our lives. Go on pilgrimage when we can. Find and use your soul friend. Who is the person um, who is with you in the journey that you can count on to be alongside you and helping you? And finally, practice compassion and justice and practice hospitality, practice kinship with creation, practice a way of being in the world that is um, that incorporates all the goodness of God and all the goodness that you and I um, were born to be living into. So that said, I'm going to um, stop the sharing here and just ask you what strikes you about this? What questions do you have? What, what does this mean for you? What do you want to talk about? You can feel free to unmute yourself if, if you want to just ask a question directly. Pat, something that I was really, that really struck me, I loved how you showed the maps of places and that I could picture yeah. where people were going. And I was sort of picturing this story of, of the event, the Christ event. I loved how, yeah. you, how you said the Christ event and sort of the 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 wave of people learning about the event of christ and sort of what that like distilled down what that meant for the celtic community like what was the good news to to the celtic community yeah well um so that's a great question so christianity the story of christianity comes to the celtic lands um early um even earlier than Patrick. And really it comes as two sets of stories. One is it comes as the set of stories into England and Southern Scotland through the, through the, the, the order and the structure of the Roman empire and, that, and, that, and the Roman soldiers that come. 
and and the good news and the story of God that comes there is this is the story of uh, of a God who is um, who is uh, ordered and powerful and beautiful and um, and um, builds communities and uplifts people where they are, um, and that's a that's a um, and who offers uh, salvation from sin, who offers you know healing from brokenness, and it's very much like the story of the gospel that we know, and at the same time. As you know, Rome is coming and bringing, and the Roman you know soldiers are coming, bringing their own faith into those places and and and, and leaving behind, like for Patrick, the story of Christianity in his village is a, is is that kind of story. At the same time, there's this um, experience of Christianity that's coming to Ireland at the same time from um, sailing traders coming from the Mediterranean and exploring kind of the wild you know outer lands of, of Ireland. And what's coming to them is a is a um, is a Christianity which is um, about finding the goodness in the people and the practices and the beliefs that are in in the place of Ireland then um, that are um, seeing you know a sacred belief in the number three as you know this is a reference to Trinity and seeing an understanding of, of, of the beauty of creation as, as a reminder that God spoke the world into being, um, as well as um, this powerful impulse towards holiness and purity that comes from the desert fathers and mothers. Um, so there's in Ireland a very like a monastic and holiness-based influence in that, in that, um, in that land. To the extent that, like, when you go to Ireland today, you'll see thousands of places that are named desert, in 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 lands that are green um, and you know water filled. It's really it's really kind of funny. But there, the the way that Christianity grows is is um, in a more like organic and individualized way than you see in England. And so then, what happens is those two communities are coming together as this mix. To some extent, you know, conflict, but to, but to some extent, mix of of those values of 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 the way of Christianity. So, um, what I think is beautiful is the is that the story of God comes to us as we need it, and it comes to us incompletely, so that we have curiosity about what more is there. Um, and um, and so, you know, what I love about this about this you know, history is, it's not something that I can just copy and do as much as some of it attracts me. Some of it doesn't attract me. Um, it, it is a, it's a glimpse into a way that people have pursued God in different ways than I have pursued God. And so that makes me wonder, what does that mean for me? Is that good for me or not? Uh, and that, and that um, invites me into uh, moments of change and reflection. Did that answer your your question? Okay, good. Phew. <laughs> it's like Robin has a question. Go for it, Robin. Hi, Pat. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. I, I have two things, so I'll say the first one 
first because it's a commercial. Um, my friend Megan Valdi, who's here, has created a beautiful Visio Divina for Easter with music and fine art and scripture. So um, if anybody's interested, I can get that to you. And then the second thing mm -hmm. is that um, I have a, a Celtic heritage yeah. from birth, and yeah. I feel like everything you said is like coming home for me and that I have been fighting other ways of trying mm -hmm. to be a Christian my whole life so I really mm -hmm. appreciate that and um, so I'm wondering if other cultures like the Asian Christians or the African Christians if they feel this same way about Celtic spirituality mm. um, so I can't I can't speak for you know a lot of other cultures what I can say what I've noticed is, um, I, I have seen a lot of, um, well, first of all, I don't think any of the themes of Celtic spirituality is totally unique to Celtic spirituality, other than perhaps the Anamkara, that, that whole idea of soul friendship is pretty, is pretty uncommon, but like, um, you know, prayer in everyday circumstances and, you know, creation practice, you know, when you, when you like, was a very common set of practices first. For, for the uh, the Jews of Jesus day. So first century Hebrews practiced a very kind of earth-based spirituality. Um, but I think what's happening for us in the European context is that we became focused on our, on our mind, on the spirituality of the mind along the way. And so what I've discovered is that um, heritages and traditions that either weren't focused on the, the enlightenment and the practices of the mind um, or who weren't part of the cultural or political norm have more more of an overlap. So I find like island peoples, like you know, my friends who are native Hawaiians, very similar practices um, in their in their Christian ways. Uh, uh, native and indigenous um, uh, Americans and Canadians, First Nations peoples, have very similar practice sets, or a lot of overlap. Um, and a lot of that also has to do with a sense of how the land and the landscape um, speak to us and feed us and how they're actually living and vibrant and not just, um, and not just uh, an other thing. Um, I, you know, I, I see less of that in the global south, although, you know, what's, what's intriguing to me about Celtic, contemporary Celtic communities is that you know, there's um, communities in the in, in community of Aden Hilda, the folks that I'm participating with, you know, there's a cluster of folks in Australia, there's a cluster of folks in Sweden, there's a cluster of folks in the US and Canada and, and, and um, um, Australia, New Zealand. Um, um, nobody that I know of in South America and Africa, um, um, but I think people, people see a way to be um, a holistically Christian in a way that doesn't fit in the normal kind of Anglican Catholic model that comes to us from a um, more of a uh, political inheritance than a spiritual inheritance. Um, what I see in the global south in, in Latin America and Africa is um, especially in contemporary times is, is oftentimes what's growing right now is oftentimes a more, much more like charismatic and Pentecostal um, um, focus on spirituality. And that can be 
embodied that can be a disembodied thing as well so it's kind of a it's growing in different ways right now but i'm i'm always surprised how for my friends who are island peoples in in the caribbean in hawaii and folks who are native and indigenous peoples how um how similar these practices seem I see Becky's hand. Go ahead, Becky. I just want to thank you for reminding me of um, how much uh, beauty there is in common things. That mm -hmm. that book that I recommended, Brian Doyle's uh, a book of uncommon prayer. It's about common things. Like one of my favorite prayers in there is a prayer for parents who stand in the pouring rain at a kid's soccer game. <laughs> and so yeah. you, re you reminded me of, of the beauty in things that I dread and don't look forward to. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Becky. I, I need to go look at that book. That sounds very good. That sounds very good. I, I Brenda, I did gonna... you raise your hand? Brenda? I did. Oh, go yeah. ahead. Yeah, um, I don't have my camera on. I have um, uh, poor connectivity and sometimes that helps. So um, oh, if that's okay with you. Um, I just, I couldn't help and, and I had to step out of the meeting for a little bit. So this may have already been said and I apologize if that's true. But um, I am currently uh, working on some curriculum as a as a instructor in a physical therapy program to um, to create mindful clinicians. So we're doing mindfulness practice, and yeah. everything that you've described just takes me there. But with this beautiful overlay of our faith, I yeah. mean, it's just this beautiful connection. So you may have already said that, but I just want to thank you for reminding me, um, you know, in my kind of professional world that when we're trying to keep our clinicians calm and help our patients be calm and in the moment and present, um, that this is all a very similar practice. Yeah, yeah, thanks Brenda, I, I, I agree. It, it's, um, I'm fascinated by the, by the um, resurgence of mindfulness practice in, you know, contemporary culture and contemporary business, right? Like I work at Starbucks and when we are, so we're all remote still from quarantine, but when we're in the building, there are, um, you know, there's mindfulness meditation um, during the day and in, you know, in common rooms and, um, you know, Starbucks is a, you know, famously progressive place to be, which is part of what I, what I like about it, but it's not just that it's a progressive place where white people like mindfulness, it's that we are we find it difficult to be disembodied and we want to be kind of re-embodied. We find it difficult to be um, inattentive and we want to be attentive. And I think that's, that's the, um, the attraction of contemplative spirituality. It's the attraction of mindfulness. For me, it's much of the attraction of the, of the Celtic way and the Christian way as well. I, I'm reminded, um, if you've read uh, any Thomas Merton, so Merton, uh, Merton is a, um, is a really, really interesting figure in contemplative Catholic spirituality in the 60s, especially 50s and 60s. And, you know, near the end of his life, Merton was, um, was uh, exploring both uh, Celtic heritage and Celtic spirituality, as well as um, he was just looking at what's common between all the monastic spiritualities, you know, between, um, you know, Buddhists and Christians, for example. And, so he was looking at what do we have in common? We certainly have differences in, in how we practice and, and, and what contempl contemplation means. 
but he was looking at um, the, the intersection, the overlap between the Eastern traditions and what we think of as a Western tradition. And I would just, as a side note, say that it's good for us to remember that Christianity um, was birthed in the Middle East and is therefore an Eastern tradition and has grown for us to be a Western tradition, but it's good for us to also see where, where we have Westernized it. And I think that mindfulness and intentionality and presence um, all are inviting us into a place where we, where we pursue the, the Trinitarian God in perhaps different ways, but in surprisingly applicable ways. Like I, I need mindfulness presence and centering prayer presence more when I'm having a conversation with my boss at work <laughs> than I do after I've read the Psalms on a Tuesday afternoon, you know, I just, I, because I'm, I'm more dislocated for myself <laughs> when I'm having a con conflict meeting at work than I am when I'm, um, you know, reading, when I'm reading a good, you know, prayer book or whatever. I think that's a, that's a really good thing. Thank you. That's great, great commentary. I see three hands. I see Grace, and I see Mel, and I see James. Thanks, Carrie. I don't see any hands at all. So, oh, okay. Folks, <laughs> out. Good. So, um, go go ahead, Mel. I saw yours earlier. Oh, well, yeah. I was um, thinking a little bit back there when you uh, there was a question about how it relates to other traditions, yeah. uh, uh, spiritual traditions and practices, yeah. and. I uh, went to a, one of the Whatcom Reads um, activities because we read a book called Washington Black this year. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, it, they ran a program called I'll Fly Away on um, Negro Spirituals. And she talked there about how um, community is vital, that their community being their peoplehood, their you know, their form of um, how they sustain themselves, uh, that, uh, that music helps hold the world together. Mm -hmm. And so everything uh, is imbued with music and they have, she, it, it's they use their bodies too. She talked about, and I was trying to look at my notes, but it's, uh, it, it's called a, it's a, called a, a ring shout. Mm. where where she was talking about actually going and visiting um in african villages contemporarily and they they form a circle and they just began you know to chant community welcomes and songs and songs about the earth and songs mm. about themselves and you move in it and if you look at like the black churches and stuff movement is so mm. important and music is so in heartening and that's it was a it's a deep deep well of connectivity among themselves among you know to reach for god it's a way they reach for the ancestors for yeah. are an important part of their spirituality and i think that um we're just kind of beginning to have a little bit of appreciation for 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 example the um the Mexican tradition of um, the Day of the Dead yeah. and how we have received from our past so much of 
our faith and our life. And so that's a different kind of embodying. Uh, for me, it, it's a bit more active than this going out into the mountain or going off yeah. and watching a sunset or the ocean or all that. That's yeah. because we live in the, we live in the hinterlands, you know, where we are, we are, we are the sky and the sea are abundantly available to us. Yeah. But but great parts of the world do not, ha right. they, they live in much different uh, biomes and yeah. and connect themselves to each other and to mm -hmm. their earth. And I even went one time, we went one time to, uh, was it in San Diego where they have the new, in the, in the zoo, they have a new African biome that the day we were there was in the upper, mid to upper eighties and it, it was this big sandy desert place yeah. with you know the the dry kinds of things that can grow there that yeah. exceedingly economic the plant life and stuff and a black woman in a wheelchair was starting at the top and it, it kind of goes down through a desert like a like a gully you know and she got she went now that's what i'm talking about <laughs> yeah and it just yeah. it just whoosh caught me you know yeah. and planted me in that sensibility in a way that was really a thrill mm -hmm. so i just wanted to comment a little bit about how that the ring circle visual yeah. and for me i mean i do identify as a celt but for me there's a great bardic tradition which is you know, you're sitting in a circle, you're singing, you're talking, you're laughing, you're dancing, your body moves, you're, you're making noise, you're going out there. Yeah, 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 that's beautiful, I love that. I, I'd also say, I, I, I love that, that's beautiful. I'd also say um, one of the things that I think it's good for us now to remember is that Christianity is a communal faith. And uh, it is much more about who we are together than it is about who I am as an individual and what's my individual relationship with God. Like that doesn't really show up in, in scripture that much. Um, and who we are as a community is not just who my local church is, but it's about who we as the people of God in this time in all places are and how, and how we can learn from each other and practice together. I, I, I love that. I love, um, I love that the, I love that the person of God is not limited to what it would mean to be God for a suburban white dude in East side Seattle in the tech field, right? Mm -hmm. That seems to be a very limited God. I'm thankful for that aspect of God, but, um, that aspect of God is not, is not nearly the only aspect of God. So, yeah, I think that's great. Jay, James, did you want to? Yeah, I have a question that relates to, uh, I'm in three different, very different contexts in life where I have much to do with death and dying. Yeah. And I'm wondering if the Celtic tradition speaks to that very much in terms of either traditions, viewpoints, or liturgies. Yeah. That's really good, James. So, um, yeah, you know, one of the things that surprised me as I've as I've lived into this a little more uh, is that um, the you know one of the thin 
one of the thin places and thin spaces that I mentioned um, earlier is this thin place in the recognition that the difference between those who are dead and those who are alive is not quite so different as we as we think of in our in our day. So like this is where the tradition of, of Halloween comes from, right? Halloween comes from an earlier pre-Christian tradition that that um, that looks at um, what we call All Hallows Eve. It's the it's the crossover of the seasons, and it's really it's a day that in the pre-Christian times was um, was the season was the seasonal transition between fall and winter, but also the seasonal transition when on that day of the calendar, those who've passed away. Um, have the thinnest difference between death and life and they can kind of come back into the they can come back and harass the living people's households and so like a lot of the halloween tradition is we dress up to scare away the people who um who you know are gonna are gonna harangue us um and that you know that that of course is grown in, in very different ways it's much more like the day of the dead in the in the mexican tradition than it is um, in our, our modern halloween um the at the same time like the, the there are profound practices of of grieving and lament in in all of these cultures because they were aware of death in a way that i think is abstract for us so like in the irish tradition there's a there's a they had a very kind of jewish similar tradition of keening which is when somebody has died they would hire people to wail for them on behalf of the family so that the family could feel the grief of loss um, and it's the same thing that we see, you know, we see the stories of Jesus um, encountering people who have died, you know, or, you know, walking the road and noticing that people have died because the people who were hired to grieve on behalf of the family are there. And that's a different thing that we see. And it's a hard, like, that's a hard story for us to hear because it feels fake to us or it feels like performative in some way. But in reality, for that culture and for the Irish culture, it's a way of fully experiencing the grief of loss and the grief of, of death, even though they may have a sense that death means they're not quite so far away as I would think of. It still is a people who are not, who are not there anymore. You know what, there's an interview with, in fact, I think this shows up with, uh, in the John O'Donoghue interview on, on being, one of the things he did when he was a priest was he would sit with people who were dying and then sit with them after they had died. Um, and he talks about the um, the way that the the um, in the in the Irish tradition um, part of the reason for the wake is um, that not only are you celebrating the person who has left, but you're helping the person who has left to realize that it's okay to leave because you're you're there with them and their body as that body is transitioning from life into death, which is a much more gradual thing than we might think of. So he talks about kind of just the shifts in the sense of the presence of the person as they pass from, from life to death. Um, it's not an experience that I have because, you know, uh, the folks that I've been around who have died, um, you know, um, I, I just didn't have that experience when my grandparents died or when, you know, when I go to an open casket funeral or something, but I can certainly believe that because even like when we go to an open casket funeral and we go pay our last respects to the person, there's a sense of profound reverence that people feel 
And I think that's not just because that person is gone. I think it's because there's something um, very real about the person who is be, I don't know how to say this. I think, I think when we, when, when we see that person touch their face, whatever we do, um, there's something that feels very, um, just profoundly meaningful and profoundly real in a way that if we just think that their soul is gone and um, that person is no longer that person, it doesn't seem to fit what we believe. I don't know if that makes sense. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. I think we um, would love to hear from Grace and then I'm, I'm thinking it might be time to wrap, wrap things up. So Grace, you, you had a question too? You're, you're on mute, Grace. Oh, I'm going to pass. It's okay. Okay, are you sure? Right. Well, go ahead, Nikki. Oh, I was just going to offer a word of thanks for Pat. Yes, if wants to yes. thank you so that. much, Pat. Pat, that was wonderful. Um, I appreciate you so much being with us and sharing with us. And um, I'm going to put you on the spot and you can say no if, if you want to. I, I can also put Doug on the spot. But I wonder what one thing that I do, um, even at church, when I'm receiving a blessing is I put my hands out. And Pat, I wonder if you, I know you're a pastor and I know you, you have a lot of blessings, but I wonder if you have a closing blessing that you would be willing to offer us. And if all of you want to put your hands out to receive, I, I invite you to do that. Pat, can I ask that of you? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Nikki. God of the universe, God who is three and God who is one, God who is wild and untamed, Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your voice. Thank you for the way that you challenge us and comfort us and lead us into places that we've never seen before. Be in each of us tonight as these ideas echo, as these words echo, as your invitation to us echoes. Remind us that you always are here. Remind us that we always can seek you. Remind us that you always are beautiful. Remind us that we always are yours. For all of us, may you go in peace to love and to serve, may you go in peace to be loved and to be served. And may you go in peace to recognize the beauty of the presence of God. Amen. 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 Thanks to all of you for being here this evening. I hope you, you enjoyed this time and I look forward to, I feel like we need another two hours to just talk about what we, what we just learned, but we'll do, maybe we'll catch up next month. Um, but that's all. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Nikki. Right. Yeah.
Thanks for listening to another FPC podcast. We encourage you to subscribe every week. You will be receiving some of the interviews that we do, as well as the sermon, as well as some of the music that we have. And we are also including some FPC special events. We encourage you to subscribe. Thanks for listening. Thank you.